0: Good morning. How are we? Good, good. Hey, a lot of people actually responded that time. That was great. Like Jeff said, my name's Tim. I'm one of the ministers here at the Parkway Church, and I'm excited to be uh, preaching this morning. Uh, before we get down into our text, I want to tell you about a weird, very strange experience that happened to me a couple weeks back here at the office. Our office, uh, well, is right here. Our church building has got a great location. It's on this very busy road. Virginia Parkway. And so there's people all day long driving past to and from wherever they're going, just driving past our building, which means there's also a lot of salesmen and vendors driving past who go past and they think, I bet they want to buy something from us. Let's go talk to the the parkway guys. And so constantly throughout the week, we have people coming and knocking on our door, ringing our doorbell, trying to sell us something. Someone's trying to get us to hire them to do our, our landscaping, or they're trying to get us to, to, to renovate our building with all new hardwood floors, or to kill all the fire ants we have, or to install lasers to make our, our experience in worship more laser All the time, people are just ringing our doorbell trying to sell us something. And so, we were in a staff meeting, or we were in a meeting a couple of weeks back, and we all of a sudden heard the doorbell ring. And when we haven't scheduled a meeting with somebody, then we're like, okay, it's probably someone trying to sell something. And so I walked to the door, I noticed through our little window that there's two guys with matching polos, with a little company logo on the polo. So I'm like, okay, great, they're salesmen. But these two were no ordinary salesmen because one of them was on his phone, about six inches away from his face, and he was leaning against the double doors, on the crack of the double doors. So I had to, I had to kind of push him off the door in order to actually open the door. And so I'm kinda like, this is strange. I, I, hey, how can I help you guys? And there's silence. One guy, he just keeps texting, or doing whatever he's doing. The other guy just kinda stares at me. Silence. Enough silence that I had, I had enough time to read their monogram shirts that heather their names on them. I don't wanna embarrass them by actually using their real names, in case you ever meet these characters or you have a similar experience at your place of work. But I'll call them uh, Brynry and Brykel, okay? You'll never figure that out. Okay, so we'll, we'll call them Brenry and Breichel. And so I come out and say, how y'all doing? And After a long, over, just way too much time of silence, Breichel speaks up, and he just says, sup. I'm like, that's an interesting strategy. I'm like, hey, how can I help you guys? And Brenry, still on his phone, doesn't even look up, he says, do you want a printer? I was like... A printer? Uh, no, we already have one. We've got one in our office. Works great. Everything's fine. And then Brychel looks shocked. He's like, seriously? I'm like, yeah. I don't know, like, do they think that churches like, don't have technology? That's a good assumption. But no, we have a printer, we have a company that we lease this printer from with a contract, and it's, we pay too much money for it. But we have a printer, and it works great, and so we're good. He's like, really? what? Really? You have a printer? And then Brennery says, man, it's just right in the truck. It won't take long to unload. I'm like, it's not the proximity that's the difficult part for me. It's the fact that we, we already have a printer. We have a printer. It works great. Everything's good. So we don't, we don't need a printer. And then Brichel, he kind of gets the salesman strategy. I, I think, okay, now he, here's a true salesman coming in for the, for the deal. He says, hey man, this is a really popular printer. It's just right there in the back of our truck. It's really popular. If you decide today you don't want it, and then later on you're like, hey, I should have gotten that printer. It may not be available because it's so popular. I'm like, listen, Brichel, buddy, we have a printer. It works great. I'm not going to be at my desk later today thinking I should have gotten that thing that we didn't need. That's not going to happen. Maybe it's a 3D printer. I don't know what he's got. He hasn't even told me that. I'm not convinced that I need this printer. It may just be like some weird little desktop printer. But he's, it's just right there in the car. It it may not be available anymore. I'm like, hey, man, we're good. Have a nice day. (laughs) We don't need a printer. And then Breichel says, hey, is your name Carl Brower? I was like, oh, no, but I would love for him to deal with this. That sounds great. (laughs) So I just get on the phone. I'm like, hey, Carl, there's some guys that want to, it's something about a printer. He's like, sure, I'll be right down. And as he approaches, he he walks down. That's not how Carl walks. I don't know. That's not meant to be an impression. But the fact that y'all laugh is, I don't know. I don't know what's happening there. I see Carl and he sees the logo on their shirt and immediately goes, Oh, great! It's our new printer we've been working looking for from our new company that we just got a contract with. I was like, what? These poor guys are like, hey, man, we got your printer to deliver. And I'm like, no, man, we're good. They're like, what is happening? What are you talking about? But they never, they never told me any of that. They never said anything. All they had to say was, hey, we're delivering this printer that you ordered. Like, here's an invoice. Here's an order form that, that you, you've already paid for it, so it's yours. So please get it out of our truck so we don't have to, like, go all the way back to our office. But they never said that. They just need to, to tell me a little bit about who they are, but they, they didn't do that. I'm just trying to piece it all together by myself. In our text today, Paul is going to do the opposite of Brinry and Brichel. He's actually going to clarify why he's written to the Romans. He's going to clarify why this letter has been long It's sometimes difficult. He's just going to say, here's why I've written this long, sometimes difficult letter to you. Here's why I've emphasize and sort of really harped on certain points he wants to make sure that that no one's in the dark no one's left guessing why he's written all of this and ultimately by explaining his motivation in writing Paul hopes to magnify the glory of God so with that in mind we're going to pray before diving into our text this morning God we we thank you for your grace to us we thank you that you are a good God who cares for his children I pray this morning uh, I pray that I would uh, rightly handle your word, that what I say would be uh, expounding your word. I would not put any of my own thoughts or add rules to your word that are not there. I pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear, that we would be humble, and even as we talk about some bold points, that you would refine us, you would correct us, you would transform us, and ultimately, Lord, you would, you would form us into a community of believers who makes disciples to the glory of the name of Christ. This is our prayer this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's begin in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. If you've been tracking with us in our our walk through Romans, you may remember that the past three chapters of Romans, Paul has been sort of coaching the Romans in regard to how they are to live as Christians. And specifically, live in harmony with one another as Jews and Gentiles. He's given instruction after instruction, command after command, calling these two groups to lay down their preferences for the sake of their brothers in Christ. He'll tell the Jews, hey, stop judging the Gentiles for eating pork. Christ has fulfilled the kosher laws of the Old Testament, so stop judging them. And Gentiles, stop given the Jews such a hard time because they're, it's hard for them to eat pork because their whole life they've been, they've been following these kosher laws so it's hard for them to start eating bacon so stop serving it to them and stop judging them and giving them a hard time for being afraid of it serve one another love one another so Paul's just spilled a lot of ink just trying to help these two groups eat a meal together stressing their unity in Christ and following this We come to our text this morning where Paul seems to step back almost apologetically. After all this instruction he had to give in order for these guys just to sit down, have a pleasant meal together, he says, I am satisfied about you, my brothers. You yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. It's just, it's quite the shift. Some commentators will say that Paul's probably just trying to buy some brownie points with his audience. He doesn't know these people. Paul's never visited the church in Rome. He didn't didn't plant the church in Rome like he had planted other churches. So he hasn't hasn't earned the ability to rebuke them without without first saying something nice. So Paul started the letter talking about how he's heard of their faith all over the world. And he's he's, uh, heard how awesome they are. And then he said 15 chapters of really difficult stuff. And so now Paul has to kinda complete the compliment sandwich just so no one gets mad, no one gets offended. It's a compliment sandwich, it's that thing that you're supposed to do when you fire somebody or you rebuke someone or you break up with someone that you're dating. If you just say, hey, you're the worst, well, they might be hurt or they might be so mad that they won't actually listen to you. So you gotta let them down a little easier. You gotta say something nice, say the bad thing, and then say something nice again. That's a compliment sandwich. So for instance, you gotta say, hey, Benjamin, you've got so much creativity. Every moment I spend with you is grating. And you're punctual. And that feels (laughs) better. It's a compliment sandwich. Ending the rebuke with another compliment just to kind of help the medicine go down. That would be a poor example. Don't try to do that. Paul is not trying to do that here. I do not think that that's Paul's intent. These compliments don't appear to be so hollow. He says, my brothers, I'm satisfied about you. A better way to translate it might be that I'm convinced concerning you. Based on the information he's received regarding the church from others who know the people in the church in Rome, Paul says, I'm convinced that you yourselves, meaning apart from Paul's instruction, independent of Paul, he didn't plant this church. Paul's saying, without my interference, I'm convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. First, he says they're full of goodness. This is a pretty general term that just means to show that they're kind, they're honorable, they're upright people, especially in how they relate to others. So in some cases this word can even mean generous. They're just they're nice people to one another. So he's convinced they're kind to one another, they're upright in their dealings with one another and generous as they pursue harmony with one another. And then he says that they are filled with all knowledge. With all knowledge. All knowledge? So the Romans, do they know about germs? Do they know the the trillionth decimal of the number pi? Do they know where McKinney is? Do they know when Christ is going to return? No, they they don't have all knowledge. So then what Paul, what's, what's he talking about here when he says all knowledge? All I think that Paul is trying to say is that the Romans have all the knowledge necessary to do what he has commanded throughout the past three chapters. The Romans are a good, kind, generous body of believers who are equipped with everything they need in order to pursue harmony, to be unified in their pursuit of Christ, to to not be overcome by what divides them, but rather be unified in their hope of Christ. So Paul's just saying, he's not nervous about the church in Rome becoming a a train wreck of division before he's able to visit them, especially because he adds that they are able to, to instruct one another. This word instruct is better translated admonish. In fact, this is the only time that ESV translators translate this word as instruct. So I don't know why they do it here. But the Romans are able to warn, to admonish one another, to be able to say, hey man, that's not right. You can't treat your brother that way. God's word commands us to act this way. So stop doing that. That is not the way of Christ. So even if division were to creep in among the Romans, as every church runs the risk, Paul is confident that they are kind and knowledgeable enough to be able to nip it in the bud, to rebuke one another, to discipline one another, and through such instruction, admonition, come out stronger, more unified than they were going in. So again, I don't think Paul's just being diplomatic. Paul's genuinely enthusiastic about the spiritual state of the church in Rome, so he encourages them in their faith. And to be honest, this is is our desire. This is our desire for the members at Parkway. The elders and staff at Parkway want for our members to be good, to be generous, kind to one another, to be equipped theologically, Ah, equipped with all knowledge you need to pursue this calling that God has given the church to make disciples and we want for you to be able to warn one another when your priorities get misordered to instruct one another in the way of Christ I'll be honest very few pastors can say this something like what Paul's saying about their church very few churches check all these boxes most churches they don't have uh, church members that are able to instruct one another at least not biblically but this is our hope among us in this little church, that when you have disagreements or you feel hurt by one another, you would have this kindness, this generosity toward one another in order to say, they probably, they probably didn't mean to offend me. They probably love Christ. They probably love me. They, they probably would want me to tell them that I'm hurt so they can carry that burden with me. They can apologize if they've acted in sin. To assume goodness about the the other person on the, on the other side of the divide. And when you start to look down on your brother or sister for, let's say, sending their kid to public school or sending their kid to homeschool, so just not sending their kid anywhere, keep them in the home, <laughs> or you look down on them for drinking alcohol or for not drinking alcohol, or you look down on them for how they spend their money, that you would have the knowledge of God's Word to recognize that's not important. Christ has not commanded that we homeschool our kids or we send them to public school. He's, he's not commanded that. He, I have an obligation to obey all that Christ has commanded in God's Word, not to add my own rules to it. And then when, when we get off track, we do add our own rules. Or when you say you're in a community group with someone who's a little difficult. You're in a community group with someone who, like Paul says, is a, is a weaker Christian, maybe someone new to the faith or someone who's been in the faith for a long time and is kind of legalistic, that you would be able to patiently instruct one another. And this is very important, to be able to be instructed by others, to be able to hear reproof, to hear a rebuke for the sake of being more and more and more conformed, sanctified to the image of Christ this is our prayer for you at parkway and like paul i have to say that i'm grateful for this church we're by no means perfect but i've never seen a church so full of people who have completely given away their rights their preferences for the sake of giving honor and glory to our triune god there are a lot of people that will say i love jesus there's tons of people they got it on their on their car on a bumper sticker i love jesus but very few will love jesus to the point of obeying his word I'm grateful that we are a people that treasure and seek to obey all that Christ has commanded. I'm grateful for you. So moving on. Paul's transition is about as good as that. He says, you guys are great, you're full of goodness, you're awesome, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. On some points, and I believe that he's specifically talking about these points regarding how Jew and Gentile Christians are to relate to one another, He says that he's written boldly on these points. He's written unapologetically. He's written in ways that might have offended some people, all by way of reminder. In other words, nothing Paul has said should be all that new to the Romans. Telling them, hey, don't look down on somebody for having a hard time eating bacon because of their former life in Judaism is not something that should be new information. This is all a reminder Part of being a, a pastor or a minister is counseling people in your church. And so if you're ever wondering, like, what do these guys do all during the week? Well, we, we have a lot of coffees with people. We have a lot of people over to our house. We have a lot of people that we just go grab a meal with. And we talk about something in the Bible they don't understand or a really difficult time that they're going, they're going through and a crazy decision that they're trying to make in their life. And, and a lot of those conversations will say something like this. Hey, I know you already know this. I know you already know this, but Christ has forgiven you. I just need to remind you that Christ has forgiven you. Or we'll say, hey, I know know you already know this, but you're not responsible for that person's salvation. You're trying so hard to be the agent of change in their life. You're not responsible for that. God is. I know you know this, but you're not responsible for their salvation. Or I I know you know this, but, but everything that God does is good. All that God does is good. And it's for your good. And Christ has has suffered. He sympathizes with you. Because we we know that we're forgiven. We know that only God can bring someone to faith. It's not about our effort. We know that even in the worst of times, God has not abandoned us. But we need constant reminders. So Paul's not going to apologize for what he's written. Because he knows the value of these reminders. He's written so boldly, not because the Romans just didn't have enough information, not because what the Romans had was inadequate, but because of how important it is for this faith to extend into our actions. Paul's just ringing the same bell over and over and over again, like when you hit that snooze button on your alarm. It's not as if you don't know that you need to wake up, but it keeps ringing every five minutes, or however you had it set up, saying, hey, you need to wake up, hey, you need to wake up. Hey, you need to wake up. And eventually you go, I think I need to wake up. Paul's just ringing this bell saying, hey, you remember how God has adopted you because of nothing you did, because of only what Christ has done, not because of what lineage you come from, not because whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or because you don't work on the Sabbath or if you eat pork or not. You remember that, how Christ has, has saved you not because of your works? Then, as he says in Romans fifteen seven, welcome." One another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Don't welcome only the Jews or only the Gentiles or only those who dress like you or eat like you or school their children the way you do. Christ doesn't do that. He welcomes all who are redeemed by His blood. Therefore, you ought to do the same. This is nothing new, it's just the natural implication of the gospel let's continue in verse 15 says on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder Well, why have you done that Paul well because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles Paul says he's written so boldly because God he's given him grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles what on earth does this mean what is he talking about here if you've ever read the book of Acts or Paul's letters in the New Testament you'll know that Paul has been given this Special calling to deliver the gospel message to the Gentiles. We talked about it a lot at the beginning of our study here in Romans. He was uniquely called to be an apostle or a, an authoritative carrier of the gospel directly commissioned by the risen Christ, specifically to the Gentiles. He mentions this at the beginning of Romans, Romans 1:13 13 through 15. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He wants to go into, to save, to to see these Gentiles come to faith. I'm under obligation both to Greeks, really smart Gentiles that are educated, and to barbarians, not so educated Gentiles, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Because you're Gentiles, because that's my thing. Zach's the shooting McGun Pirates guy. Paul's the Gentile guy. That's his thing. He says, "I've been set apart to carry the gospel specifically to you." Paul's been given this apostolic, this authoritative role by God, and so he has a responsibility to ensure that this church is in a healthy place. He feels he's got to do his due diligence to remind them of the essentials of the gospel, so that nothing spoils the harvest. He hopes reap there. And that's why he's written so boldly. He continues, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He gives this really vivid illustration of how he views his relationship to the church in Rome. But he uses all this weird, strange vocabulary from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And so it kind of ends up possibly being lost on us. Some of you may know that Jeff Ashley loves TV shows and movies. Watching movies, watching TV shows. But what I think he loves more than watching TV shows and watching movies is storing up quotes and references from those movies to use a normal conversation later on. He loves to do that. And most of the stuff he references, I'm like, he's like, you know this? I'm like, nope. And he's like, well, it's pretty funny. And you're like, well, okay, that's the end of that. And so we'll be in a staff meeting talking about how we wish that, you know, we wish we had the finances to partner with this uh, church planner in another country. And Jeff will say, well, there's always money in the banana stand. The people that laugh, They know what that's from. They know it's from a TV show, Arrested Development. But some of you are like, what's a banana stand? What are you talking about? (laughs) Likewise, Paul here is referencing a passage in Isaiah, the last chapter of Isaiah. And it's lost on us because most of us don't, we just don't know Isaiah as well as Paul does. So he makes this reference and we're kind of a little caught off Caught off guard by all of Paul's talk about this priestly service of the gospel and the offering of the Gentiles. We're like, we're talking about human sacrifice here. What's happening? So, I'm not going to read the entire passage. It's pretty long. So, you'll have to watch the rest of development and read Isaiah 66 to actually understand this section of my sermon. But I'll put a helpful excerpt. Okay, we'll be fine. I'll put an excerpt on the screen, give an abbreviated summary just to you up on, keep, catch you up on what Paul's talking about. Paul, or Isaiah, looks forward to a day when God will send appointed people to Gentile nations. Isaiah is looking forward to this day where God is going to send out appointed people to Gentile nations. And it says, To the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all of your, meaning Israel's, all of Israel's brothers as an offering to the Lord. They're going to bring them back to Jerusalem as an offering to God they will tell the Gentiles about God's glory and the Gentiles will be called brothers to Israel this is shocking they'll bring these brothers as an offering to the Lord and they will be given to God as this offering this living sacrifice That language should sound familiar to us Paul references this prophecy in Romans 15 15 through 16 just to say I've I've written so boldly because this has been ordained by God for me to be a minister to the Gentiles to deliver the gospel of God to you to to present you to God as this offering of praise I'm like this priest presenting an offering to God and you guys are the offering you are this living sacrifice we get this language from Romans 12 verse 1 Paul says I appeal to you therefore what does he call them Brothers, I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Christians are no longer required to offer the sacrifices offered in the Old Testament. These sacrifices, their purpose was all to point forward to the day that Christ would make His one and for all sacrifice. In Christ's sacrifice, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was satisfied but now believers present a a different sort of offering not as a means of having our sins forgiven but as a result of our sins having been forgiven we offer our lives to God in obedience saying I'm yours all I have is from you and for you do what you wish with my life because of Christ's sacrifice we now offer ourselves as obedient servants to our heavenly king. And so Paul's relationship to the Romans is to pursue this priestly handling of the gospel he's been given, wherein he delivers the gospel to these Gentiles and encourages their response of obedience to Christ. And he then adds that this offering is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The Romans have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit So when a sacrifice was offered under the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, priests would would sanctify or purify things by, like, sprinkling them with water or with blood. They they were required to take a bath before offering sacrifices, and then they had to, like, sprinkle water on the altar. This was all done as a sign of recognition of the great distance between God's purity and perfection and humanity's uncleanness. So in order to offer up anything acceptable to God it had to be ceremoniously purified from all uncleanness. And Paul says here his offering has been purified by the Spirit, sanctified by the Spirit. And here again Paul makes a reference that is lost on us. This time from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36:24 through 28 says, I will take you from the nations, meaning his people, and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you I'll remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules Paul isn't the reason that these believers are obedient, acceptable, living sacrifices. Paul's not the one who's caused the Gentiles to walk in obedience to Christ. Rather, the Spirit is the source of their obedience. The Spirit is the source of all obedience. There's this, there's this old hymn that we'll probably eventually adopt into our rotation someday. And it's written about the Holy Spirit that says, Every virtue we possess and every victory won And every thought of holiness are His and His alone. They belong to the Spirit of God. And I have to ask you, is this how you understand your holiness? That it's His alone. Is this how you view your status before God? It's a nice thing for us to affirm. It's a nice lyric. But sometimes we forget this in our daily lives. You're You're not better than those who have not been sanctified by the Spirit. You're not smarter than your unbelieving co-workers. You're no less utterly depraved, lost in your sin, a bitter enemy of God, apart from the Spirit's sanctification. The reason that you're acceptable to God is not yours to boast. And Paul joins in here saying, it's not his either. This purification, this sanctification of sinners is the work of the Spirit alone every virtue we possess every victory won every thought of holiness are his and his alone let's continue with verse 17 let me warn you sometimes the ESV people I love them but I don't think they do as well as I could with their translation rarely but this is one of those occasions verse 17 the ESV says in Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, The Greek word for work, and any word for work, is nowhere in that text. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know why they, why they do that. I'm disappointed that they threw it in because it could be a little misleading. No translation is perfect. That's okay. Here's how another translation, the, the NASB, this is how they translate it. I put them both here on the screen so you can see how different they are. Therefore, in Christ Jesus... I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. So Paul is warned elsewhere that against boasting in one's own accomplishments, he's certainly not doing that here. He's not saying, look at my work. I'm so proud of all I've done for God, which is what ESV sounds like it's saying. It's not, and there's a way you can read it where you understand, okay, they've, they've given us the meaning of the text, but it can be a little confusing for us. Paul is simply boasting in what we just read. He's boasting that God and his divine sovereignty ordained that brothers from all nations would be welcomed into the people of God, that Paul was graciously commissioned to be an apostle to these brothers. Paul, the guy that was breathing out murderous threats against the church, has been commissioned to be an apostle to these brothers, and that God has determined that that Paul's offering would be acceptable and sanctified by the Spirit. God has made these Gentiles obedient. And so Paul is boasting in these things pertaining to the work, what God has done. Unless anyone thinks that Paul is actually just saying this to boast about all that he's done, he clarifies in verse 18 through 19. For I will not venture to speak, that word venture is to say, I will not be so bold. He was bold earlier, but now he says, I will not be so bold to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. All I'm talking about here, Paul says, is what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, to make those who are far off from the kingdom into obedient, living sacrifices sanctified by the Spirit. And this is accomplished not by Paul's strength, not by his intellect, not by Paul's strategy, but rather by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. All of these things that he mentions are just different facets of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Gentiles are being saved, are being brought to obedience by word and deed, he says. Paul's proclaiming the gospel, the word, and people are hearing it and trusting in Christ. Paul's getting beat up and imprisoned and kicked out of cities, and he keeps going back in, preaching the gospel. Indeed, people are seeing this, the deeds of this man, and they're repenting and trusting in the gospel. And then he says, by the power of signs and wonders. So let's talk about signs and wonders. That's exciting. We're going to have our deacons bring some venomous steaks down here to the front. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Signs and wonders is a phrase that you often see in the New Testament and it just refers to something miraculous. This is obviously what's meant by the word wonders. We see especially throughout the book of Acts that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was accompanied by several wonders. We're told that Paul performed miracles in Iconium and in Ephesus. He healed a crippled man in Lystra. He healed a woman possessed of an evil spirit. He raised a guy named Eutychus from the dead Poor Eutychus was listening to Paul's sermon and was like, I am sleepy, and fell out of a second-story window. He dies, and Paul raises him from the dead. He healed many people with diseases on the island of Malta, and yes, he was even bitten by a venomous snake, and he was totally fine. So Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was full of wonders. Don't let a snake bite you. Just, I got to clarify that. Don't go around letting snakes bite you. But Paul's ministry was full of these wonders. These wonders are also called signs. And this is really important for us to understand. A sign refers to this confirmation of something or a proof of something. Give us us a sign, we'll say. Usually a physical or material confirmation or proof of something that is spiritual. And biblically speaking, a sign is this demonstration, this proof of divine authority. So in Paul's case, these wondrous miracles are signs that Christ, the promised Messiah or the Savior King of the Old Testament, is reestablishing his rule and reign on this earth. He's defeating his enemies, reversing the effects of sin. Right now, we experience sickness. Who's ever gotten sick? Wow, we're doing great. Everybody's like, I've never gotten sick. We all get sick, we experience chaos, we experience division in our church, we, de- we experience all of these evil things because of sin. Because all of humanity has rebelled against and rejected the rule of God. And when you rebel against the author and creator of life, you get death and sadness and sickness and cancer and poverty and chaos. So the whole Old Testament is looking forward to this day when a greater king this Messiah will come and put an end to all of sin, reversing the effects of the rebellion. And so, for instance, when Jesus steps on the scene and he starts doing all these miracles, he's not just doing magic tricks, he's performing signs. He's demonstrating that he has the divine authority to restore all things back to how they were before our rebellion. He's demonstrating, hey, I'm the Messiah, I am that King. And so now Paul, his signs and wonders display to the Gentiles that they're included in Christ's restoration of all things as well. When Paul heals the sick, he raises the dead, he casts out a demon. This is a sign given to the Gentile observers to show that Paul has been given divine authority as an apostle to demonstrate the power of God to the Gentiles, specifically to the Gentiles. So the death, disease, or demons, they have no power over the Spirit of God that God is triumphant over sin and death and will one day return to bring an ultimate end to all that opposes the rule and reign of Christ, including the division between Israel and Gentiles. So Gentiles hear the gospel, they hear the word, they repent and they trust in Christ. They see Paul's actions, his commitment to the gospel, they repent and trust in Christ. They see people healed, people raised from the dead, and they repent and trust in Christ. And these Gentiles become obedient to the rule and reign of Christ in anticipation of this coming day when Christ will reestablish his reign on earth and will restore all things. And in case you forgot, Paul again clarifies that the source of all this power is the Spirit of God. Paul's word, his deed, the signs and wonders are all the work of the Spirit of God for the sake of bringing Gentiles to obedience. And so Paul then adds that because Christ is doing all of this and not himself, the gospel of Christ has been fulfilled from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Paul is, in our text next week, going to start talking about his, his travel plans. He wants to stop in Rome and his, he makes his way out to Spain. And so he begins to introduce the reason behind why he wants to do this right here in our text. So far in Paul's ministry, the boundaries of his ministry of the gospel of Christ have reached from Jerusalem and spread all the way to Illyricum. And that is a ridiculous, a massive distance. If our projector was better, I'd I'd show you a map. I love maps. We can't do that today. Illyricum is just this Roman province, this territory that's directly east of Rome on the other side of the Adriatic Sea from the boot of Italy. So it's just right there. He's just on the cusp of getting to Rome. And so Paul just revels in the fact that Christ has used him to carry the gospel from Jerusalem that far west. But he'll go on to say his desire is to keep moving, continue onward, keep going west. Paul intends to see Christ's gospel carried further still. So it's like if Paul began his ministry in McKinney, the New Jerusalem, as everyone calls it, and walking south on 75, he's delivered the gospel all the way to Richardson. But he wants to go further still. He wants to go to Dallas. And from there, he wants to go to Ennis. He wants to go to Corsicana. For some reason, he wants to go to, to Babylon or Houston, whatever you call it. <laughs> Paul ends this passage by making very clear why his mission must continue beyond Illyricum. Romans 15, 20 through 21. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Again, Paul references Isaiah. But this time directly. This comes from Isaiah 52. We all know Isaiah 53. The suffering servant passage. Talks about the Lord's servant being pierced for our transgressions. But the, servant, the suffering servant passage actually begins in Isaiah 52. Towards the end of Isaiah 52. Isaiah tells us that this suffering servant, this king, this Messiah, will be Marred beyond recognition. And yet, even though he's marred, other kings from many nations will honor him and submit to his reign. They'll, they'll recognize and submit to Christ's superior authority. And the passage ends saying that those from these nations who have never been told of this king will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Even those who did not grow up with the Torah, or the law, and all these scriptures that pointed forward to the day of the Messiah's coming, they'll be introduced to this king, and they will see Christ for who he is. They'll respond appropriately. And those who've never heard, in contrast to the Jews, who have heard their whole lives about this coming Messiah, but have rejected the Messiah, those who have never heard will, will hear, and then they'll be given understanding. They'll not only see this king and say, oh, look, there's a, there's a king, but they'll, they'll rightly see it they'll rightly understand that he is Lord over all. So Paul plants his flag in this verse. The suffering servant, if you remember, actually appeared to Paul. Told Paul that he would take his gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul points to Isaiah 52 to say this King, this Messiah, this Christ, he's come. He was marred beyond recognition. He was pierced for our transgressions. He rose from the grave and made me his chosen instrument to fulfill what Isaiah prophesied. Thus, I must go. I must obey. I must go where they have never heard. I must go to those who have never been told of him. His calling is what fuels his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, not where Christ has already been worshipped. Then he adds that he doesn't want to build on someone else's foundation. Well, why not? The Parkway Church was built on other people's foundation. There was a fa- foundation laid by a guy named Jerry Holbrook before us. And he built on top of someone else's foundation. And there was someone before that. And on and on and on and on and on. So does Paul just want to be the first? You see it like the US and the moon landing? What's that? We were here first with his flag? No. Instead, Paul simply sees himself as bound bound to the call to fulfill what Isaiah prophesied. Paul, too, has offered his life as a living sacrifice to God. He said, my life is yours, Lord. Do what what you want with me. And Christ has replied, you are my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, to declare my glory to those who have never been told and have not yet heard. To go where no foundation has yet been laid is what Paul has been commanded to do. Isaiah said that after Christ's sacrifice was complete, the glory of Christ would be announced where He had not been named. And so that's exactly what Paul aims to do. Striving to go all the way to Spain, he says, in obedience to and for the glory of Christ. And that's where he ends his passage this morning. So having encouraged the church in Rome, having demonstrated why he's written to them, having detailed his mission to bring about the obedience of Christ among the Gentiles, even those who have never heard of Christ. Admittedly, all of us here are Gentiles. So we must recognize that Paul has written this letter so that we might be obedient to Christ. Again, there there are many who say, I love Jesus. He is the best. I love Him. But but love apart from obedience is not love at all. To disobey God's word is to disobey Christ. Christ you cannot love Jesus and ignore his word no more than I can say I love my wife and ignore everything she says, or ignore only ignore everything that I don't like that she says so my prayer this morning is that we would be a church obedient to the Word of Christ a church of which it can be said they're full of goodness they're filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another that we would remember the command given by Jesus to his church In Matthew 28, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them what? To obey all that I've commanded. That we would daily proclaim the gospel of Christ to one another by way of reminder. That we would disciple one another and that God would use us to carry the name of Christ into the hearts of those in McKinney and beyond who have not yet been told, who have never heard. Sure they may be very familiar with the name of Jesus, but the Spirit has yet to give them ears to hear. They've not yet understood God's abundant immense grace to them. And So the call given to us this morning is that we would offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices. We release ourselves from our our preferences. We, We lay down our rights and confess that all we have is from God. All we've been given is for God, and thereby we obey all that Christ has commanded us. So may we be a, a people who treasure the word and the gospel of God. And I pray that he may use our lives for the sake of his glory. Amen. Won't you pray with me as the volunteers come forward to serve communion? Our Father, we thank you for your grace to us, your grace and your historical plan of salvation, reading about the foundation from which we have been established. I pray that this would lead us to worship you in humble, receptive gratitude. We thank you for the gift of your Son, by whom we've been redeemed. Christ, who has satisfied your law and has given to us the status of blameless according to your law, We thank you for welcoming us at your table this morning, calling we who were your enemies sons and daughters. Thank you that you have made a new people for yourself, that you have united we who are enemies of one another under the banner of this hope of Christ that we share. I pray that you would unite us all the more. You'd fill us with goodness. You'd fill us with knowledge. That We would have the humility to admonish one another, to recognize when we need to be admonished. All of this, is a recipe for disaster apart from your spirit. So we ask that you would strengthen us into a knowledge and love for Christ and your word. So that word would translate into action. To so be with us now as we rejoice in the presence of Christ. Amen.